afternoon. Thank you for, oh, I don't think, I think you're going to be speaking first. <laughs> Good afternoon. My name is Ron Chernow. I'm the president of Pan American Center. Welcome to the second annual World Voices Festival, which has been an extraordinary extravaganza. We've had 135 writers from more than 30 countries, and we've done more than 50 programs. I have to say that this festival was started with the working hypothesis that uh, Americans were famished to hear from writers abroad to read more uh, literature and translation, and the enthusiasm and response of the audience has really to led us to believe that uh, our working hypothesis has been abundantly confirmed. Uh, we're now in the waning days of the festival, but I would like to remind you there are plenty of terrific uh, events uh, still to come. In fact, if you would like to pitch a tent in this very room at 3 p.m., we have Who's News, a global perspective on what makes news and why, and then if you still have the stamina, at 5 p.m., we have uh, the Global City. Now, as you know, the uh, panel today is um, on free speech and religion. I can't think of a more emotional, a more incendiary uh, uh, topic. Indeed, I feel as uh, president of Pan American Center, there is not a, more, um, a greater challenge that we have ever faced as an organization. In the past, um, an autocratic government might censor an excessively outspoken writer. But we're also dealing with, in addition to that traditional problem, we're dealing with enraged groups of citizens. Uh, we're dealing with the blind fury of the mob. And instead of dealing just with censorship, we're dealing with something potentially even more insidious, which is self-censorship. Um, we have a very distinguished uh, panel of writers uh, today. And also, these are all people who have been in the trenches. They have been on the front lines of this very uh, battle. So this should be an extraordinary occasion. And with that, I'll pass uh, the baton over to our friend Ian Baruma. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on such a beautiful uh, Saturday afternoon. Um, the theme is free speech, as you have read. Uh, I don't think, unless I'm much mistaken, that anybody here is going to be defending the thesis that uh, free speech is a bad thing. Uh, in principle, we all agree. The question is really what happens after the word but. Are there, con <laughs> are there conditions that, uh, that, that limit free speech as a principle? Well, there is the law, of course, um, and in the countries of at least uh, one of us on this panel, uh, there is, for example, a law against denying the Holocaust. Um, there are laws against hate speech in many countries. There are law, laws against um, causing religious uh, offense. Um, but apart from the laws, there may be other conditions. Uh, respect, politesse, public order, and so on and so forth. I know, for example, that um, Ayan Hirsi among others, um, would very much welcome a kind of Voltaire uh, in the Muslim world, somebody who can say, and ridicule, uh, and use ridicule, um, comedy, uh, criticism, and so on, to um, uh, apply to Islam in the way that has been done with uh, Christendom uh, in history. Now, the, one of the questions that we might discuss is to what extent um, there is a difference between Voltaire, who was up against one of the two most powerful institutions in, uh, in, his, in his country at the time, 18th century France, um, and to what extent that's different 
from speaking out against uh, a religion that is held by an already vulnerable minority um, in Europe. And this, of course, I'm talking about Europe and not about uh, being a Voltaire in Iran or Saudi Arabia, which would indeed take courage of a very high order. Um, before uh, introducing the panelists, and I won't go through all their works, uh, you can read that in, in, in the booklet. Um, I'd like to make one thing clear. Uh, there is a tendency with these kind of discussions, especially this kind of topic, for people to be seen as representing some kind of community, someone speaking for the Germans or the gays or the Muslims or whatever. Um, we're all individuals here, of course, uh, although we have um, different backgrounds, and everybody, I think, should be uh, taken as, as speaking for themselves. Um, on the far left, is uh, Juan Luis Sebran, a very distinguished editor of El País, um, thought by many uh, to be the best uh, newspaper in, in Europe. Um, next to him is um, Upamanyu Chatterjee, um, a novelist uh, from India, and a civil servant, which I've always found um, a, a, an admirable combination. Mm -hmm. um, a, a female Voltaire in the Muslim world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, to my right um, is a hyphenated European, I think, uh, a Turkish sociologist and writer uh, working in France, um, who's written uh, very interestingly about uh, the consequences of Islamic affairs on, on, on women particularly, but again, I don't think he's going to be introduced as a spokesman for your gender. Uh, and then to the far right is uh, Hans Martin Enzensberger, um, uh, poet, writer, uh, thinker, etc., uh, um, etc. Et um, now, um, I've made. Uh, we don't have all that much time, so um, on the and then I forget. There's another panelist. I'm terribly sorry. Um, uh, since uh, although we live in the land of the brave and the free, the free, um, the final panelist, Tariq Ramadan, um, is not able to be here today uh, because um, he was not uh, allowed to get a visa. Uh, and since he hasn't committed um, any crime, as far as I know, uh, this must have something to do with the issue of free speech. Uh, he will be speaking to us, however, uh, but on tape. And uh, the panelists are all going to be speaking for about five minutes, uh, except for Tariq Ramadan, um, because he only has one shot today. Um, he'll be speaking uh, for more than 10 minutes. And after that, we'll have a discussion and uh, as soon as possible throw it open to the floor so that we, you can participate. So I um, suggest um, we start from the left uh, with uh, Mr. Sebrian. And um, Ayan has um, requested to be the last speaker before uh, Tariq Ramadan. So then we'll just go carry on that way and then loop back again. OK, thank you. I feel very happy being in the far left of the the, the panel. <laughs> well, I have some notes just to be very brief. In his book on liberty, talking about freedom of speech, John Stuart Mill remembers that one of the first men condemned by religion defamation has been precisely Jesus Christ. That shows to us that the very stuff. I repeat. In his book on liberty, 
talking about freedom of speech, John Stuart Mill remembers that one of uh, the first men condemned by religion defamation was precisely Jesus Christ. That shows to us that the very same concept of blasphemy, an offense or insult against the name of God, can be ambiguous and depends on who is judging in every case. Democracy is about self-government of people, a method of exercising political power based on the decision of citizens. Citizenship is the root of democracy. Theocracy is about power too, is the government of God. But God has and receives very different notions depending the kind of religion you have, the way you prefer to exercise your faith and the diversity of relationships between the churches and religious authorities within the state and political institutions. Since the establishment of modern democracies, we have seen always a tension among those realities, the city of God and the city of people. City of God is the land of believers, the place of faith. City of people means freedom, civil rights, and rule of law. They are not necessarily confronted but there cannot be the same. When we talk on freedom, the first is freedom of thinking, freedom of disagree with the others, freedom of disagree with God, of thinking by myself, by ourselves. Freedom of speech is the consequences of that and the root of many other civil rights. But freedom of speech, as any other, is not unlimited is restricted by the freedom, the exercise of the other's freedom. The law must precise those limits, pursuing the common respect. Democracy is a world of pluralism, where no one ideology, no one religion, no one citizen has more rights and duties or deserves more protection than the others. Democracy is the land of hesitation and doubt, religion, is the kingdom of the official truth. There is no truth in democracies, but the right to search for it. Pluralism does not mean total relativism towards different individuals and social behaviors or ideologies. Democracy is rooted in the, accepta in the acceptance of some universal values that apply to every individual, man or woman. The question is that those universal values are not so universal now in a globalized world. Economic growth and rule of capitalism have become universal now, no matter the country you are talking about. But freedom and individual rights do not belong to any immense number of state nations in the world. Some of them are, at the same time, religious states and demand from the globalized Western media a more cautious and sensitive treatment when they speak about their faith, their gods, or their prophets. Not only Muslims, Christians, Catholics, Jews, they do it too. Because the increase of international tension after September 11 and the invasion of Afghanistan and Iran Many Western politicians are afraid that criticism of media 
could create more problems with the state religious Muslim countries. And they ask for the criminalization of blasphemy. The question is to know if religion and God himself, or herself, if God, if God will be a woman, deserve a special protection in the liberal laws. And the answer is not. Having said that comes the question of provocation. One thing is to criticize, and the other to provoke, say many people in government. But the duty of writers and journalists is not only criticize. Provocation belongs to the nature of culture and literature. Provocation is not only, is not mainly about insult. It's about imagination, creativity, and fight for freedom. Too often politicians try to convince themselves that problems of the world lie more in the knowledge of their existence than in the reality of these problems. Thus, silence is the willing of the power. The Western tension with Arab countries exists not because the publication of a cartoon in an Edenist paper. That tension responds to the inequalities among countries, the persistence of poverty in many places of the planet, and the use of violence uh, in, uh, for the resolution of conflicts. The injustice is a pace for the growth of fanatics, both political and religious. But fanatics of the others cannot be solved by becoming as fanatics too. Democracy is not an ideology, cannot be enforced. It's the result of a social consensus about the rule of majority and the respect to the minorities. The globalization has made that borders between democratic and non-democratic countries, divisions among cultures through geographical and political frontiers have disappeared. Our duty now is how to live in common with societies and individuals that do not endorse our same points of view. The only response is the rule of law, both at international and national level. We should to impulse the international institution on that field. We have to make an effort to recover respect for international law and international rules. The lack of respect for that is causing international disorder and war. Let me finish by appointing only a few words about identity. Identity is a concept very much on the mood in the current days. In the name of identity, the identity of individuals and communities, a lot of injustices and violence have been appeared in the last decades. To emphasize them, or to avoid them. But democracy is not about identity. There is not, it's about pluralist democracy. There is not a democratic identity, but many democratic identities. The temptation of power is to use identities, natural identities, national identities, local identities, religious identities, as a means of, of describe and then discriminate between the good and the bad citizens. We can hear very easily and very often how you are a good Spanish or a good Catalan, 
or a good American, if you do a speak or not English, if you are or not a Latin or a black. The defense of identity in the globalization has become an obsession for many uh, people, who, for many governor, governors who disregard the importance of the establishment of these universal values commonly accepted that can help to us to live in peace and freedom in a world of pluralism. Those are some points to discuss with the panel. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Mr. Chastity. Uh, should I wait for the needle hand to touch? I'm sorry? Should I wait for the needle hand to touch 60? Uh, no, you can go straight ahead. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my position on the uh, subject is very clear, almost banal. I'm all for idols, for insults. I support writing, I support religion and freedom of expression. Um, the maxim is clear. Uh, let a thousand flowers bloom as long as you don't hurt anybody. Certain obvious points need to be reiterated. Um, there is a huge difference between insults in the private and in the public domain. We've all cracked jokes privately against various ethnic groups, but between that and insulting depictions of gods and prophets who are not your own. Between those two uh, lies an enormous difference. We all know religion is a sensitive business, a matter of culture and belief. When one can't understand a particular religion, one should leave it alone uh, till one can. In fact, uh, one can best analyze and assail it, assault it, only when one has understood it fully. An extension of this idea simply is that, is the notion that if you have to criticize a religion or a culture, perhaps you should start only with your own. Uh, I'll take two minutes to uh, give you an example from India. Uh, India's Muslim population is the second largest in the world. Uh, it's over 150 million. One very renowned Muslim painter by name Hussain, who is now close to 90, has for the last 60-odd um, years been painting off and on the portraits of Hindu goddesses in the nude. But periodically, uh, and uh, the obvious point that these differences have nothing to do either with art or religion, but they have a lot to do with politics, periodically Hindu right-wing groups attack him, uh, burn down his uh, exhibition hall, um, go and ransack his house. But he's like, he's like a phoenix. He, he just rises from the ashes every time. Last, when they did this, uh, they actually asked him point blank uh, that you know, you've no right to denigrate uh, a religion that is not your own. Uh, to which he, 
wise man. He said, uh, what do you mean it's not my own? It's as much mine as your own. In other words, uh, the, he clearly blurred the line between Hindu and Muslim and further obfuscated the issue. Uh, the, the issue has died down now, but periodically flares up. Uh, one of the reasons why it has died down is that uh, a third party took him to court. Mm -hmm. And the moment the court steps in, things do seem uh, to calm down. One, because the court takes ages. You know, and people have you know, to live their own lives, so they just um, uh, pass the earlier issue by. The court takes ages, and, the, uh, and uh, what was once, what once looked important suddenly doesn't look important anymore. Thanks. Thank you very mm. much. Oh, sorry. Hans Magnus. Uh, well, we, we all seem more or less agreed that uh, freedom of speech is a great achievement, almost, you might say, a virtue. And we sometimes forget uh, the, the, the way to achieve this uh, freedom of speech was very long. It took us a very long time, and it was very contradictory. And because uh, uh, I think it's also... Uh, a thing which is rather difficult to accept, really, uh, to endure the freedom of speech. It takes some doing. It takes a lot of training. Uh, I remember that uh, Kierkegaard, for example, uh, when there was, uh, the press were writing about him, he, he, he went totally off his... Off his uh, he lost his, his nerve and, and uh, viciously attacked the freedom of speech in fact, he said at one point uh, 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 that uh, journalists should be put to the wall and shot. Uh, and that from a person who himself was not uh, exactly modest in his attacks of other members of society, for example, uh, he, 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 went front, uh, he went head on against the Danish state church and so on and so on, and he did not spare his enemies. So uh, the difficulty was in uh, he, 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 the reciprocity. He could not, he, he would attack, but he couldn't bear to be attacked. That's a very common phenomenon, and I think, uh, uh, and I, I think that uh, in, in the present uh, cultural conflicts, this uh, plays a role. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you see, uh, it, as I said before, it takes a lot of doing, and like thought of a lot of time. Think of our yellow press, for example. I mean, the yellow, our, I don't know about America, but the British yellow press, for example, is is really uh, is really. I mean, it's up to up to insult, to to humiliate, to to to, to destroy people. You might say, and it's not the only country in the world where this exists. Still. Uh, uh, we, we have learned to bear with the freedom of expression, if I may put it this way. Uh, only then, uh, in the present cultural conflicts, you cannot count on, on reciprocity. Because, uh, well, the penchant, of course, for feeling insulted is on the rise. I mean, uh, people, uh, many people are becoming more and more sensitive. There's the phenomenon of political correctness, for example, and in transcultural terms, uh, there is a complete lack of, of reciprocity because, uh, well, uh, in, in, a, in Muslim societies, it is a current phenomenon in many, not in all uh, 
context, but it's a current phenomenon to, to insult the Jews, the Christians, the West, <coughs> America, whatever. So there is very little limit to this freedom of expression there. But uh, the other way around, uh, the, the least, uh, it's a sensitivity bordering on squeamishness, I must say, that uh, there's this, this, this uh, ridiculous local Danish newspaper uh, created a worldwide row. I mean, uh, the best thing, of course, would have been to ignore the thing. Uh, and I think there was a lot of bad faith involved in this because, uh, because uh, this, this sensitivity, this uh, propensity to feel insulted is, of course, a resource uh, waiting to be exploited, politi exploited politically. It works. And they did a deliberate job, by the way, uh, another aspect of this affair was that uh, the insult, if insult was intended, was of course universally multiplied. So the people who put this to the front, uh, the, the people, the agents, let's say, who, who made a big deal out of this uh, local phenomenon, uh, uh, they, they actually succeeded in multiplying the insult, if that is what, what it was. Then the multiple, it, was a, it became a universal insult. So, so I mean, uh, it's clearly the case that this was not to protect the face of Muhammad. It can't be, have been the intention. Otherwise, why, why take care for this to be a, a, a billion people saw this thing? You know. Uh, well, uh, of course, uh, we are perhaps also a little bit professionally. Incapacitated to understand all this because, as a writer, uh, uh, it is a matter of your your own uh, your own being. I mean, you have to defend the freedom of speech, and that is perhaps not everybody's cup of tea. But I mean, it would be suicidal for us to give in to this kind of of censorship and self censorship. Then we could just as well uh, stop uh, working. Uh, I'm. I'm this, this is uh, all I have to say for the moment. Doesn't mean, you know, that you're not responsible. That's another side. That, that's the side of the of the person who produces something, whatever it may be. Maybe uh, words, maybe pictures, maybe films, whatever. You, in some way, you you, you are being held accountable for what you're doing. And uh, so, if you deliberately start, for example, uh, there have been writers who were. Great uh, producers of hate, for example. I mean, I, I can be held accountable. There's not only the law. There's also uh, also the fact that uh, you are the one who who, sta who started this, and you have to take you, you have to, to take some of the consequences at least. You know, you, might, you know that you run a risk if you do that sort of thing, and you have to to, to live with this risk. Uh, otherwise, uh, the, risk, the alternative would be to give in. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was, before coming here, also wondering why freedom of expression matters to me as a sociologist. And I said it is exactly because it is, um, uh, it's a way to depict, to describe the world in which we are living in a more cri critical way and in a creative way. Sorry? No, no, no micro. Okay. So, uh, and I think uh, that's why maybe we're coming from different uh, horizons and uh, because this critical attitude towards the world um, in which we're living 
It's both a political expression and artistic and social scientific. So that maybe brings us together why it matters so much, the uh, freedom of speech. And I, I, I think it's first, it's a taboo-breaking process, freedom of speech for us. Coming from Turkey, it meant for, first for me, a taboo-breaking more in the ideological taboos, mostly imposed by the state power. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are also taboos that are much more intrinsic to the societies. That's what we call social norms. And it's sometimes more difficult to have free speech against society, against even what we can call today the public opinion, mm -hmm. the common sense, than the, the, the ideologies imposed by the state. And uh, that's the famous uh, French uh, sociologist Bourdieu who was saying sociology is against the common sense. And I like that. It's really the capacity to criticize the norms that are uh, shared by the society sometimes. And I think, so the first uh, maybe uh, thing which bothers us here today is that these norms that are becoming more and more imposing or intimidating is related with religion today. Mm. And it is not only a matter of state power, but it is a kind of uh, coming from the society from below or from communities. So that is the first thing. Uh, secondly, um, freedom of expression is also related in the last, especially maybe 10, 20 years, uh, in creating new consensus in our, in our uh, societies maybe referred basically to this political correctness attitude that is trying to defend the rights of minorities, rights of women against, uh, uh, or ethnic groups against hatred, um, uh, hate, speech, um, hate speech or anti-Semitism or sexism, for instance, against women, homophobia or, or whatever. Sometimes we have also the feeling that these new norms are um, becoming new taboos, although it meant to defend the rights of the minorities, that, that, that these also norms can be sometimes too much restrictive in terms of freedom of expression. For instance, negationism of genocides are sometimes criticized by the historians if it's a good thing or it was also, it restricts uh, some kind of uh, uh, freedom of speech. Well, again, coming from Turkey, I would first of all would like Turkey to remember its past and uh, so deal with this very important question of uh, the Armenian uh, history with Turkey and create a common memory. So uh, I think it's a very important issue in terms of freedom of speech, but I think it's not only the recognition of the state, but also the remembering of the society. Again, this uh, remembering of the society, Turkish citizens, which is much more painful and difficult to address as an issue. Um, so uh, first to say that this Freedom of expression is an outcome of a conflictual conversation between minority, majority groups, and uh, also uh, maybe against hegemony of one group <coughs> on the other. So we cannot speak of freedom of expression totally disconnected from this power game. Maybe we enter into a new phase. That is the um, feeling of anxiety we all share, at least I share, having the feeling that we enter into a new phase because uh, what we meant as the progressive intellectual through political dissidence, uh, avant-garde art, cultural criticism, post-colonial, our Indian, especially friends, contributed to that. All that, those forms that helped us to address issues that were silenced 
in our histories, in our societies, and so on. All these discourses and contributions today are no longer there. I mean, we have the feeling maybe that as progressist intellectuals, because that was almost something like intellectuals were defined as mm. only progressist. Mm. I think we're losing the ground today. And uh, so we are entering into a new phase that unsettles our habits of thinking. Why? The first thing is long-term historical process, because the freedom of expression was based upon this long process of secularization and democratization. And today, secularization as an intrinsic part of modernity is not, is cannot, be, cannot be thought as a linear, expansionary, and evolutionary process. There is a coming back of religion. Mm -hmm. That's the first, therefore, uh, observation. Either we call it revivalism of religion, fundamentalism, or conservative rights. In any, almost in every part of the world, there is a coming back of religion. So that changes the boundaries of the defining freedom of uh, expression. And the, the religion becomes a very decisive factor in debating issues that are very much related with sexuality, life and death issues, abortion rights, women's rights, bioethics, scientific thinking. This is one minute I'll go with the second. And the second thing is we can no longer think in terms of secular Europe and pious America. Because within secular Europe now, all these issues of religion are also addressed by Muslim migrants uh, in public life. The last word I would say in the first uh, tour is, but it's not only an issue of religious tolerance we're facing, because there is a new articulation between faith and identity that we have to face. That is, Islamic radicalism today, or Islamic movements, have turned faith into a collective identity. And this gave rise to different figures, uh, public figures, like neo-martyrs. We don't have words for them. We cannot define it. Martyrdom, it was a basically Shia tradition. But now today what we see, we don't have words because we call them suicide bombers, terrorists. It's all of them together. We call the neo as a prefix to just underline that there is something new going on. But it's the same with veiled students. They are adopting the veil, but they are not really traditional religious pious groups. They are turning maybe religion into something, uh, something, a, a new statement, a collective identity. And I think that is this couple between faith and identity which is becoming problematic. And this is not only my last word for Islamic religion, but the encounter of Europe with Islam also in a paradoxical way turned Europe into a matter of identity. That is, Europeans are defining, mm -hmm. especially today, more and more debating what is European identity about. A tacit equation between European project and the religious Christian heritage became overtly today discussed because nobody have questioned the Christian really uh, background or at least as an identity of the European project. But in its encounter with Islam, Europe is more and more debated uh, as an, uh, not as a project but as an identity. Maybe I'm too much French biased, but I think Therefore, the identity-faith equation is becoming also a problem in defining our problems. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I think uh, a lot has been said by the other speakers that I agree with. Um, I will quickly start with the question 
can and should um, religion be open to criticism, satire, comedy, etc. Um, let's look at the word can first. I think we can. Anyone who is endowed with the ability to express himself can say religion is bad or it's good or make fun of it. The central question is should it be open? And that um, there is some controversy on that, uh, which is an understatement. And I belong to the group of people who say, yes, religion should be open to criticism. We've been doing this for centuries in the West, and it has, um, uh, in my view, led to peace and prosperity. Um, and sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's just fun and entertaining. And sometimes it's urgent to criticize ideas. Religion, to me, is one of several ideas. Regarding Islam, um, I am convinced that today it's necessary, it's entertaining, and it's urgent to scrutinize it, criticize it, mock it, whatever. There are 1.2 to 1.5 billion people, and I feel a need to criticize Islam because I strongly identify with it. I was brought up with it. I think it's necessary to criticize Islam because ignorance, the subjugation of women, and an attitude of putting the collective above the individual is rampant in this idea and its followers. It's fun and it's entertaining because Muslims or those people who adhere to Islam um, engage in rules, uh, believe in spirits, and all kinds of things that are really just like to laugh at for the sake of it, but also not just for the sake of it, because satire um, is an instrument in, uh, can be an instrument in enlightening people. And I think it's above all that it's urgent. We have young populations uh, all over the world, also here in the West, with no jobs, no perspectives, who believe in conspiracy theories, who are willing to um, go as far as to, uh, to take the martyr dogma within Islam too far, uh, and who say that they are inspired by the Quran and by the Prophet. Um, so I think it's necessary to examine why. Now, for examination, whether and how Islam is related to poverty, terror, and the subjugation of women, freedom of expression of those engaged in this scrutiny, in this debate, should be self-evident. But it's not self-evident. Of course, all religions attempt to limit free speech. But today, there is no religion that limits it more, or tries to limit it more, than Islam both here in the West and in Islamic countries. Most journalists engage in self-censorship. Politicians and policymakers avoid voicing any remarks on religion and Islam. I think later on when we discuss, I'll tell you about the fact that the European Union is busy writing a lexicon um, where they try to remove anything that may offend Muslims. Uh, when discussing terror and jihad and fundamentalism. Um, writers, cartoonists, filmmakers, artists avoid discussing Islam uh, and doing their duty uh, with other religions, okay, but with Islam. Uh, 
it's just uh, a little too much. Why? I'll just give you a short list of the mechanisms used um, in preventing criticism from Islam. First and foremost, there is violence or the threat of violence. Next, there are the denials and positive publicity. You may have seen some huge billboard ads when you're coming from JFK, which read, Islam is peace, which is, of course, something we know from uh, Christianity. Um, I've never really seen um, any of that regarding Judaism. People take legal steps uh, to silence those uh, who are engaged in any form of criticizing Islam. Diplomatic pressure. Uh, the Danish Prime Minister Rasmussen can tell us about the 11 um, diplomats from Muslim countries who came to visit him to try and um, silence or try and punish the cartoonists and the newspaper that punished it. And then you have the ad hominems. Not the issue is discussed, but the person bringing the issue is criticized in every possible way. Now, of all those strategies to uh, shut up uh, those who are engaged in criticizing Islam, I would say all of them are fine by me, except one. And that is violence and the threat of violence. And I want to end, I think, my five minutes with a remark. A society that does not protect the life and limb of individuals who see it as their duty to criticize religion or any idea of any sort, whether it's sensitive or not, is doomed to become a tyranny. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we have... Um can we have the Tariq Ramadan uh, tape? I, I'm not quite sure who's supposed to be pushing what button. But... <laughs> Tariq Ramadan, for those who don't know, is a scholar at St. Anthony's College, Oxford at the moment. He's from born in Switzerland, uh, writes in French, and is the grandson of the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. He's rather silent.
Oh.
Thank you. Um, before asking you to ask questions, um, uh, listening to words like reason and uh, common sense and civic this and that, I was thinking it might be useful to perhaps sharpen our thoughts a little bit about this question of power and whether it makes a difference uh, to whether one speaks to, to people who have power and people who have less. Uh, the progressive intellectual, uh, uh, Nilofar, that you mentioned, of course, likes to think that he's always speaking to power. Uh, the yellow press um, that uh, Hans Magnus Enzenberger mentioned, of course, also likes to think that it always speaks to power, to kings and queens and politicians and so on, even rock stars. Um, does it make a difference, should it make a difference, whether one is addressing people of power or whether the, it is the powerless? And uh, Hans Magnus Enzenberger, I write to st start with you and then perhaps the whole panel could comment on this question of power. Um, and let's get away from the Muslims for a second. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, <laughs> uh, when uh, Fassbinder uh, wrote and put on a play in Frankfurt um, about uh, a vicious character identified in the play only as the Jew, um, representatives of the Jewish community, a very small Jewish community in Germany, um, got on their high horses and got it banned. Now, that's the other side of, of course, this power struggle, that the so-called representatives of the powerless use these questions of insults and, and so on to gain some personal power themselves often. But can we focus on that a little bit? Does it make a difference whether it, one is speaking to the majority, to the powerful, or whether one is speaking to the vulnerable? Yes, well, the, the very powerless, of course, don't speak much, or they are not making themselves heard because they don't have the capacity. So in a sense, when you, are, when you have the privilege to have, a, to have a say in public, then you already are, in a certain sense, part of the people who enjoy a minimum of power. And in fact, uh, it is clear that, for example, a journalist has to maintain his, he has to have sources. So there is uh, inevitably, I think, uh, a, a certain a certain neighborhood between the intellectual community and the political community. And this may be very conflictive and even deadly in some cases, but in, in, ordinary, in ordinary circumstances, I mean, our distinguished uh, guest here, uh, Mr. Sebrian, of course, is very much part of the political establishment of Spain, whether he likes this description or not. It just happens to be a fact. It's a powerful newspaper. And uh, he, he has influence, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, he's talking, he's talking to, to perhaps two, or, I don't know the figures, but three or four million Spaniards. So he's talking also to people who don't, who don't enjoy this kind of power. He depends on his audience also, because otherwise this uh, newspaper would not work. Mr. Sebio. <laughs> well, uh, that, that question of power of the media it's always a question uh, very tricky. Uh, we, we, we always, the journalists, we do prefer to say that we have influence and not power, but we do have power. I, I do agree with uh, Hans <laughs> Magnus. Uh, I, I, nothing against the idea that the political establishment is something more than the government and the opposition. If the church are the intellectuals, the media for, for sure, and the media more and more important in, in these days. But the problem, I mean, I talk about power in my my first intervention because here is a big mistake. We are not talking about freedom of expression in uh, uh, in Europe. 
because there has been a big crash in, in Middle East or in Iraq or in Iran after the publication of the cartoons, because the cartoons have been published. The problem is because our governments have said we have to avoid blasphemy in the media. It has been said by the political leaders in Britain, in mm -hmm. Europe, in Brussels, in France, everywhere. And the problem is the use of God in politics. This country has invaded Iraq in the name of God, not in the name of a law approved by the parliament or approved by the United Nations. And the Iraqis are defending themselves in the name of God. And we are seeing what is going on in, 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 in Gaza now and in, 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 the, in the Middle East conflict. We are not responsible, writers and journalists and media, for what is happening there. I, I do agree with you, Hasmadut. We have to be responsible. Hmm. But we have not to think about the consequences of our, of, of our thinking. Hmm. If we do think about the consequences of what we are going to publish or not, we will publish nothing, because uh, the consequences are hmm. always uh, quite uh, worrying, you know. So we are talking about common sense. Tariq Ramadan yeah. talks about common sense. But what is common sense? Well, it's the, the, the less common of the senses. <laughs> but after that, what is common sense? It's not political correction. Hmm. Who, decided, who decides what is and what is not common sense? And, uh, and I do agree with Nile when she's talking about the new taboos. There is excess of protectionism for minorities in our, in our countries. And an excess of protectionism means less freedom for those people. If women are very protected, I mean, in the 68, I belong to the 68, sorry, my, but in any case, in the 68, we were for women liberation, not for paritarian formulas of uh, representation in the parliaments. That is a big difference. I, I, we were talking, we were against family as the representation of power, mm -hmm. not for the families in any case, homosexual families, monoparental families, uh, whatever families. So there is a big change in this, in this society for the worse, I think, because there is a big presence of the ideology in the democracy. And again, we invade Iraq because we are going to implant democracy in Iraq. But you cannot implant democracy. Democracy is the consequence of the agreement between people. So it's the ideologization with the name of God in politics of the democracy, what is happening now. It's not a problem of freedom of speech. After it's a problem of freedom of speech. If we don't understand that, I do believe the whole thing is going to be mistaken. You know. So that's uh, is my. <laughs> but now you've been criticizing some powerful figures, God, the government <laughs> of the United States, and by implication perhaps Israel. But what about if a Spanish paper were to ridicule the aspirations of the Catalans or the Basques? Well, that's many of them are ridiculizing that. Do it all the time. And then, you? and what they are, we are saying, people who are saying we are not buying Catalan, like Latins are not buying things here, or people are not buying Danish in the Middle East. but. People have the right to do to, to do so. I mean, democracy is not the solution for a, it's not a happy life. It's not uh, <laughs> it's not a heaven. Democracy is a method of government. Nothing else and nothing else. But it's not the solution for the for, for, for the things. The people believe that democracy arrives and then everything is happy, wealthy, and uh, uh, and no. I'm doing my best to find disagreement here, but to, to liven <laughs> things up, I, I don't think I'm succeeding very well. Perhaps uh, you can do better. 
Um, there, would anybody like to ask any single, uh, and there's a microphone there on either side, and um, then people can comment from the panel. My question is, what do you think respect means uh, for the daily practice of writing? That is, how do we achieve that as writers and continue, or uh, cinematographers, or journalists, and, and have the, the means of our expression still be meaningful and forceful without having it uh, fall back on self-censorship? That is, if someone wants to forbid me to burn the flag, my temptation as a citizen is to rush out and burn the flag mm. to exercise that right. Mm. But what I'm hearing is there has to be some change in my practice in order to maintain democracy and also uh, accommodate the values of other intolerant religions in the world. How do you approach that in the daily practice of writing or self-expression? Upamanyo, how do you cope with this problem? Uh, why me? Because um, you're a writer. <laughs> and, and work for the government. You know, uh, as, a, as, a, as a writer, uh, particularly because uh, it has such a long tradition I, I can't think of any i can't think of any self censorship i mean um, you write something that you want to and if the society in which you live doesn't like it uh, it's they who will censor you and then it simply boils down to a fight between the two if we if i can try and get back to get back this um, discussion on, on, you know, on the original rails. You know, there's an enorm enormous difference between, say, um, uh, a book criticizing um, a religious figure and those cartoons. I'm sorry to get back to the cartoons because a, a cartoon is so much more immediately visible uh, and attractive. Uh, I don't think anyone would ever say that. I mean, it's happened with, uh, with the satanic verses. Um, the book was banned in India. Nobody read it. Mm. I, 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 nobody even wanted to read it. Nobody read it, but it was banned because uh, the government said, look, I think there'll be a riot because the people who will never read it will mm. riot. Mm. <laughs> the two are entirely different. It is in no way a reflection on the book. It's just yes. this perception that, look, things will go Very haywire. True. We can live without it. Yes. So, I, to my mind, it's perfectly clear, uh, you know, a writer's responsibility is to what he wants to write. Uh, and he's not, he cannot be made responsible for the consequences. By the way, it's also impossible to control the consequences. <laughs> you don't know what you're up to. I mean, you publish something and you don't know what's going to happen. You, you, can't, you, you can't determine uh, the the uh, feedback you, that's out of the question. I, I, that doesn't mean that there is not such a thing as provocation, uh, but provocation uh, is a is a is a is a short term uh, uh, strategy. I think it, it's not very productive. I mean, if I intentionally uh, write something to make uh, some to make a big uh, uproar, I mean that, that's that's not what the writer is. is, is is really involved in. Uh, that's uh, tactical thinking, that's uh, short-term thinking. Ayan, was submission a provocation? Um. The film um, <laughs> that Ayan wrote um, that caused a great uproar, to say the least. Well, it, it was certainly a provocation, um, but why? And that brings me back to the assertion, should you make a difference between the powerful and the powerless? And for example, submission was about 
trying to expose um, ideas used by people who are relatively powerful to subjugate the powerless. And I would say it's irresponsible not to expose that. It's very complex where power lies. And I think it's most important to say the, pow the powerless should be empowered. Curbing freedom of expression is not an answer. It does not in any way help the powerless. Um, I think that if you, and that's why we have, especially in media, we have writers, we have filmmakers and so on. They are there among uh, entertaining us, also to show us in, uh, sometimes in ways that we don't like, um, the relationship between what we think and when that's converted into behavior, how that looks like. The powerless, the poor people can use freedom of expression to gain more power. Um, the silenced need somewhere to come out and say, um, listen to me, and that's again freedom of expression. So I don't see in any way um, why it would be responsible to curb freedom of expression. I'm not convinced of that idea. And I don't think it is sensitive to curb freedom of expression, even regarding religion with minorities and the impoverished, um, but that it is senseless and cruel um, to deny certain groups of people just because they are poor the right to freedom of expression or um, a critical examination of what they believe in. And every community, whether they are poor or whether they are rich, has within itself people who have power and people who do not. And it almost always happens that women and children in all of these communities are the underprivileged. And listening only to the men within those communities and saying, let's, we will not take away from you the instrument of your, uh, you know, whether it's religion or some say it's culture, taking that instrument away from you to subjugate your own women and your own children within a liberal society is not generous at all. I think it's, it's very insensitive, insensitive and very irresponsible to leave things like that. Thank you. Thank as, you. as long as they're questions and not speeches. It's yes. a question. Okay. It's a question from Ms. Hersey Ali, but I'd be happy if other speakers want to join. But I first would like to tell her that uh, your standing up for your ideas is most inspiring for, for a lot of us. So, so I'd like to thank you and encourage you to uh, continue doing what you're doing. The question is, as a European Muslim politician, and in the framework of the issues that we're discussing here, what is the most urgent battlefield? Is it Europe and its inability to uh, redefine itself and embrace European Muslims, or is it Muslim countries where Muslim moderates and, and liberals have been silenced by a religious fundamentalist? Thank you. I think it's both. Um, but because in Islamic countries or countries with Islamic majorities, it's almost impossible to criticize both Islam and uh, the government of the day which in Islamic countries takes ages. Um, because that's impossible, and because people are migrating, migration is a symptom of all the oppression that's going on in these countries. And then coming here to the West, um, yes, of course, um, we can enjoy all the material wealth and the material gain. Um, but also, I think it's a perfect platform to scrutinize, to engage in self-criticism uh, and thereby help and export ideas of freedom back home, where instead of trying to solve problems by running away, you learn to change your own society. And so that, for me, is it's not just a battle of here, but it's uh, a battle of both places. 
Good afternoon. My question is, is there or should there be a distinction uh, between the way we define freedom of speech or the scope of freedom of speech in artistic domain and uh, political or slash public domain? And for instance, a writer or a painter where responsibility to himself or herself is really the issue as opposed to a newspaper or a means of media where I see it as the responsibility level is higher and the scope the reach is uh, bigger, is there or should there be a distinction uh, as far as the responsibility, as far as the, the message is conveying in terms of freedom of speech? Mr. Sibrian is the obvious person to answer, but Milofer, do you have something? No, I think the only distinction okay. if it is if the insult or is private or public, somebody has told that, I mean. Uh, there is no, uh, I against the idea of having a special role, rules or laws about the freedom of expression, protection of journalists or not. A journalist or an artist or a writer is a citizen who exercises professionally a political right of every citizen. And freedom of expression is not the right of journalists, writers and artists, it's the right of citizens. And then the only distinction would be if it is public or not. I mean, if you are insulting in a, uh, uh, with a, an artistic uh, um, painter or whatever uh, to somebody in your room, in your studio, it's a different than if you are showing it in a, in a museum. But uh, uh, I don't see any distinction. Uh, I mean, and I'm against special rules for that, you know, only if it is private or public. Does anybody else see a distinction? Uh, I would like to jump on uh, the idea of publicness, because um, also to create a kind of controversy. Um, Good. <laughs> if I can. Uh, well, I think because it is becoming more difficult to speak of uh, uh, this old form of democracy, the question you were asking in relation to um, uh, the powerless, to whom we speak and where from where we speak. And uh, Anzenberg said, powerless do not speak. And it is true in a way, but also when we remember the debate on the Islamic veiling issue in France, that mm -hmm. was the interesting thing. The girls who put on the veil didn't speak, but they made speak the whole society. So uh, that means that, that we are more and more in a, a kind of democracy which is performative and not discursive. That is one thing. And what does this change? When it is performative, therefore idols, icons, all this visual aspect becomes very important in the communication. And that brings also the problem of circulation, exactly. That is, icons circulate much easier. That is the issue of Salman Rushdie's book. Yeah, it wasn't read, but the cartoons have been uh, seen by everybody else, by, by everybody in different publics, because it, this could have been circulated very easily. But also that meant, like the, these kind of icons, is also a stereotype images, because it mm -hmm. is encapsulated, it is very simplified, and therefore it is not discursive, and it is also much more sensorial and emotional. So the first question I raise is that, especially here, because New School, Habermas, and Habermas who linked public sphere with democracy, mm -hmm. I am wondering if we're not entering into a world where publicness is, doesn't mean more democracy, but publicness only increases this proximity between different cultures and creates accidents, accident mm -hmm. of information. So mm -hmm. how to avoid it? Now, how to avoid, therefore, more and more we're living in proximity with each other. Islam is not external to the Western civilization. It's an internal debate. We are living in proximity, especially in Europe. It's Muslims, Europeans. How to create hyphenated identities. How to bring these uh, different publics together and have some new 
the same cultural, common cultural values. That is the debate. One thing is, one position, I think it's uh, Hirshi Ali's position, we have to choose our, uh, choose one's camp very strongly. Is that, is that the case? No, I'm trying to um, uh, bring some conflictual issues. Should we be more radical and therefore defend uh, the Western values without giving any concession? Or should we try to create some new space for these hyphenated identities? So trying to find something which is in between. What is the role of intellectuals and exactly writers? Are we going to defend the values only, respect the others, or create something in between translators, interprets? I think we need also a kind of work which really necessitates this in-between people. And that requires going beyond the stereotype images of the other, cartoon images of the other mm -hmm. as well. And that, that is why, I mean, uh, the last point is the quality, the aesthetics of it. I mean, if we're here, also there are artists, intellectuals. I know that nobody wants to discuss freedom of expression in relation with good taste or bad taste. We cannot. <laughs> but there is something yeah. also. So what do we do with the quality? Yeah. Me coming from the periphery of the West, if we can say so, as Turkey, I fought against all kinds of nationalisms or fundamentalisms because of bad taste. Because I didn't want to have bad sociology, bad arts, and all that. So. Bad taste and in between people. Bad taste and in between people. I just think I want to respond to the idea of uh, choosing a camp or saying that the answer to the question you just posed is to say uh, you have to choose one camp. No. No, I say the opposite. You may say it. No, but uh, uh, that I say that you have to choose a camp. I wonder, I ask you. Okay, it's good to wonder because then I get the p opportunity to answer. Uh, I take an individual approach. And thinking from the approach of every individual is equal to the law. Um, then in a discussion on how should we live together, especially when there are people coming from uh, non-Western countries, and we put all these cultures and all these identities and all these things together. And I would say, if I am asked, um, I would say the idea that, say, that gives the individual the most freedom and thereby also the most responsibility um, is the idea that the West is built upon. It is the idea that holds that the individual is an entity in itself, an aim in itself. His and her freedoms are self-evident. An individual human being is not only free, he or she is also endowed with reason. And you can engage in all kinds of discussions. And it is the, it is the duty of the state to protect all the individuals, sorry, the freedoms of all these individuals. And the state that I subscribe to, and I would say is the best state, is a secular state, a man-made state based on man-made rules. And by secular, I do not mean against religion, but it's a state that is so neutral that all religions can live, or all individual human beings can practice their own religions without interfering with the freedom of others, even if it is your child. So it's not like you have to choose to take one camp, but if you subscribe to this notion of thinking of individual freedom, and that freedom goes for both men and women, for homosexuals and heterosexuals, for children and for adults, if you defend that system, then 
in a debate with religion and with the religious, you cannot at the same time say, um, we also want, I want to um, hold on to the notion of Sharia and practice it. Because by doing so, of course you can hold on to the idea, but by doing that, you're infringing on the rights of others. And it's then that neutral state that has to jump up and protect the individuals whose freedom is taken away. It's not you have to choose one or the other, but that in certain, under certain circumstances, it's a yes or a no. If you say men and women are equal, and if a man says, my wife has to obey me, if she doesn't, my God tells me that I may hit her, then in a neutral, secular state, in an open society, that wife's rights should be protected. And that husband will have to take one step back in practicing his religion. I hope I'm clear. Is this, is this a satisfactory answer? This is the no, this is not a satisfactory answer to me because um, so many secular states have been very authoritarian. Uh, Turkish secularism, I totally adhere. I mean, I, ideally, I totally uh, adhere. Uh, but secularism also meant some exclusionary politics, if not authoritarianism. And in the, recently in France, also, the secularist state um, pushed this new ban on the religious symbols in the public schools. But again, there, is, there has been a kind of tension between individual rights and secularism. Although, so I think there, there is, uh, the secularism, unfortunately, doesn't mean always, doesn't uh, help us to define freedom of speech totally. Although I fully agree, agree with the idea that we f have to find a common space which should be free of religion so that we can have uh, equal exchange and multi-religious multi uh, conversation. And that was the case of India before the, maybe the uh, Hindu fundamentalism came about. The in Indian secularism compared with the Turkish secularism and the French secularism meant exactly that secularism as a way of multi-religious conversation. But also in India, we are losing, losing that definition of secularism. Well, I'm glad we found some disagreement. We're coming to an end now, so uh, can I ask, I'm sorry, there's no more time for questions. Can I ask the panels who haven't spoken on this particular issue to very briefly give <coughs> their comments on it, and that'll conclude yeah. the proceedings. Well, I totally endorse the principles, but the problem are not the principles, but the reality. So, Italy is a secular state, but the Catholic Church has a lot of power. Spain is a secular state, and they, uh, still the Catholic Church has a lot of power. So, uh, we should understand that uh, history uh, does not start with the new democracies. And uh, there is a lot of mix, a lot of conflicts, a lot of influence between religion, policy, power, economy. In Europe, if that exists in Europe, that has created democracies at the time we are making colonization in the third countries, how we are going to ask the, the new democracies or the new incumbent countries to democracy to be so pure? Democracy is not a pure system. It's uh, plenty of conflicts, uh, corruption, and all kinds of things. And freedom of speech is a way of defending the people against that corruption and conflicts. Yeah, um, yes, it's true that India is um, absolutely secular, uh, but the, ever since its independence, it has, uh, the government has tried very, very hard to bend over backwards to appease uh, all its minority groups. 
thus assuring that everyone remains unhappy. <laughs> well, of course, it's true that secularism is no guarantee, but, uh, for the, but the reason for that is very simple, because there is no guarantee. <laughs> Full stop. Yes, I mean, that's yeah, it. There's no guarantee. It's a weak. Well, on that note, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting that you said this distinction between performative and discursive. But I have an objection. Because. Uh,